0: The death of John F. Kennedy changed everything, especially at the Justice Department. It meant that Robert F. Kennedy's remaining days as attorney general were numbered. RFK began looking at a run for a New York Senate seat. Jacob K. Javits held the other early in 1964. Although Nicholas Katzenbach succeeded RFK as attorney general in September of 1964, there was no longer any White House support for directly confronting the Israel lobby. The re-election question loomed large with Lyndon B. Johnson, like it had with his predecessors. Investigative reporter Seymour Hersh chronicled Abraham Feinberg's inroads with the Lyndon Johnson administration as his crowning achievement. The older, more experienced Feinberg now had booming business concessions in Israel, which turbocharged his financial and lobbying acumen to ever-higher velocities. Hirsch wrote, There's no question that Feinberg enjoyed the greatest presidential access and influence in his 20 years as a Jewish fundraiser and lobbyist with Lyndon Johnson. Documents at the Johnson Library show that even the most senior members of the National Security Council understood that any issue raised by Feinberg had to be answered. By 1968, the government of Israel had rewarded Feinberg for his services by permitting him to become the major owner of the nation's Coca-Cola franchise. It would quickly become a multi-million dollar profit center, he wrote. The exemption of Israel from Kennan's nuclear nonproliferation regime was confirmed after his death by President Lyndon Johnson in a telephone call to Clark Clifford, 1906 to 1998. Clifford replaced Robert McNamara as Secretary of Defense. In 1968, as the Israelis ramped up processing at their Dimona facility while denying to the U.S. that there was a weapons program, Clifford placed an urgent call to Johnson. Mr. President, I don't want to live in a world where the Israelis have nuclear weapons. Johnson's reply was definitive. Don't bother me with this anymore. And he hung up. Johnson would go on to celebrate the signing of the Non-Proliferation Treaty with 50 nations as The most difficult and most important of all the agreements reached with Moscow. But Johnson soon learned that even though the Israel lobby had been granted an unofficial preliminary exemption to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and even U.S. agreement not to acknowledge its arsenal, this could not buy support for the war in Vietnam. None of his Israel lobby backers would, or more likely could, push top-down policy mandates into the grassroots organizations for whom they claimed to speak. In particular, Johnson simplistically pandered for more Jewish support for the war in Vietnam. He colorfully recalled to Israeli Foreign Minister Abba Eban the lack of horse trading on the issue during one delegation's visit. A bunch of rabbis came here one day in 1967 to tell me that I ought not to send a single screwdriver to Vietnam, but on the other hand, the U.S. should push all her aircraft carriers to the Strait of Tehran to, to help Israel. Johnson suffered an excruciating public scolding in 1966 when his entreaties for Jewish support were leaked to the press. Johnson was abraded by the American Council for Judaism for believing in the top-down power myths of his circle of elite campaign financiers or that American Jewish views were somehow monolithic and homogeneous. They wrote, critical of the meeting held at Mr. Goldberg's apartment last week at which the United States Representative to the United Nations reportedly defended President Johnson from charges that he had ascribed a single view on Vietnam to all Jews and linked the administration's Vietnam policy with the United States' aid to Israel. For 20 years, Mr. Korn said, American Zionists have given the impression that all Jews automatically support Zionist policy. President Johnson, Mr. Korn stated, could ignore such claims. American Jews, he said, face a fundamental problem when their interests are linked to the national interests of Israel. American Jews, he charged, have permitted a handful of self-appointed spokesmen to wheel and deal in the name of the Jews. Although applying Farah to the Israel lobby was swept off the table by the Johnson administration, pursuit of Farah violations related to other small countries remained active. But the fact remains that any deep FBI or FARA investigation into Abraham Feinberg concerning Israel's nuclear weapons program would have created presidential campaign contribution chaos. Indeed, the volume of Feinberg's cash campaign contributions became a flashpoint when a Johnson administration staffer was caught up in a sordid sex scandal. On October 14, 1964, Johnson's top administrative assistant, Walter Jenkins, was arrested in a public restroom and charged with sexual solicitation. It was less than three weeks before the 1964 presidential elections and panic ensued. At least $250,000 in cash that Abraham Feinberg had raised, was secured in Jenkins' office safe. Johnson telephoned his trusted aides, Bill Moyers and Meyer Feldman, to retrieve the money. They successfully moved the cash, contained in a heavy briefcase, to a safer location. After JFK's assassination, the American Zionist Council immediately went into an offensive posture on the Farah battlefront. Rifkin promptly and unequivocally notified the FARA section on December 11, 1963 that our client is not prepared to register as a foreign agent of a foreign principal or to concede that it is subject to the registration requirement. But Rifkin also included an attachment of AZC payroll records, an income statement, and a schedule of AZC payments made between November 1, 1962, and January 18, 1963. This, he stated, represents the date when the mode of financing of the American Zionist Council was modified, and after which date no further subventions were received from the Jewish agency. Rifkin then made an additional request for special treatment of the disclosure. We request, however under the circumstances, that these papers be kept in files of the department not available for general public inspection. On December 13, 1963, Yegley examined the submission and noted to Nicholas Katzenbach that for fairer purposes, it was deficient. He wrote, There's no statement as to activities. The lengthy payroll serves no useful purpose for disclosure purposes. The figures supplied are described as Typical, although greater sums were received at other periods. The figures show $173,000 received from the Jewish Agency for Israel over the three months. Although this is far less disclosure than they made to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. They asked it not be available for public inspection. I suggest I write to Rifkin, or better, the council, with a copy to Rifkin, advising it is not only not in compliance with the law but not fulfillment of his representations at the meetings in your office. This division would then recommend prosecution of the council and possibly some top officials to the Attorney General. P.S. Some months ago, De Wind brought in some publications and other printed material. Katzenbach, more attuned to shifting winds in the political stratosphere, suggested a different approach. Yegley listened and then instructed Nathan B. Lenvin to prepare a letter to Rifkind in a friendly rather than a hostile tone, and rather brief, generally to the effect, that the material being submitted is not satisfactory or not what we expected, or etc., and adding if Judge Rifkind is going to be in Washington in the near future, he hopes he will come in and see him. It was to be signed by Katzenbach, not J. Walter Yegley. On January 10, 1964, the letter was dispatched to Rifkin, dryly noting that, Of course there's no disclosure, unless the data is available for public inspection. On January 31, 1964, Nathan Lenvin attended a meeting with Rifkin and Nathaniel S. Rothenberg at Rifkin's New York law office. Rothenberg presented Lenvin with his business card. The card listed his business address at 55 Liberty Street in New York City. A handoff ensued. Rifkin kicked off the meeting by showing Lenvin a pamphlet being circulated by the American Council for Judaism, which contained charges that Zionists are acting as propaganda agents for the state of Israel, and that the Jewish agency was being used as a conduit for funds to Zionist organizations in the United States. Rifkin was concerned that any disclosures which were to be made by the subject organization should not be such as to substantiate these charges made by the American Council. In discussing the adequacy of previous filings, Rifkin indicated the fact of a high-level conversation with Katzenbach and Yegley on January 30, 1964. Rifkin characterized Katzenbach as now relaxed about the overall Farah issues. He also portrayed Katzenbeck as wanting the registration section to work out an acceptable formula with respect to the type of information disclosed and what AZC information would be open to public inspection. Lenvin pressed back that too much detail on payrolls and other data was being submitted and not enough data was itemized on expenditures, their destinations, and their purposes. Rifkin countered that Katzenbeck had indicated that the Justice Department did not wish to harm the American Zionist Council to go to undue expense and trouble in providing this information, and that the department would be reasonable in regard to the period and details which the statement would contain. As if to punctuate that the American Zionist Council registration issue was now merely a low-level technical matter that would be resolved with preferential treatment, Rifkin announced that he would personally not need to participate in the future and officially delegated Attorney Nathaniel S. Rothenberg as the new key contact before the Department of Justice on the matter. On the way out, Rothenberg stressed to Lenvin, One caveat, that they would have to be sure that anything they submitted would not ultimately prejudice the organization in the eyes of the public. Lenvin promised to deliver copies of relevant May and August 1963 Jewish Agency American Section Farah testimony before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee to Rothenberg. Rothenberg had his work cut out for him. At one time, he was Secretary of the United Palestine Appeal. He was likely highly qualified to interface with organizations making expenditures and then trace how they were channeled back into U.S. programs, if compelled to do so. But now the only question was how much the AZC wished to disclose. The answer was not very much. Rothenberg's assignment as American Zionist Council's lead lawyer before the Department of Justice underscored the power shifts in the final phase of the registration attempt. Simon Rifkin was out of the picture. Katzenbach was now the insider attorney general candidate and would be named attorney general in less than a year. The tough 72 hours or else stance for an accurate Farah declaration was dissipating as the AG scrambled to extend the more conciliatory line of the Johnson administration. Lenvin, in providing Senate transcripts to the ACC, was now functioning more like the Justice Department's duplication and typing pool. He was also being forced to respond to Rifkin's assertions of privilege derived from a January 30, 1964 Rifkin-Katzenbach-Yegley discussion, for which no available DOJ minutes exist. As a meticulous note-taker, dedicated to the accurate conveyance of facts, Lenvin must have feared the return of the amorphous seemingly multi-purpose Katzenbach concession. The Ferris Section staff was now fighting a losing battle, armed only with facts, evidence, and the law. Lawyer Irene Bowman of the Ferris Section read the January 31 meeting notes and was livid. I don't see how we can accept a caveat that an organization won't submit information that might prejudice it publicly. I hope Nathan made clear to Mr. Rothenberg that this is not the test. I think we should advise Rothenberg that the worst that the council can do publicly is to stall and delay in submitting the financial information, which the law clearly requires. In a February 10 memo to Yeagley, Edwin Guthman relayed Bowman's concerns verbatim. By going over his head, Bowman signaled she no longer seemed to trust Lenvin. Yeagley responded on the 17th to Guthman, Bowman, and Nathan Lenvin. I don't think the above is quite justified, since I did not indicate that we would accept any caveat, but let's wait and see what is submitted. The very same day, February 10, Yegley sent a letter, signed by Nathan Levin, to Nathaniel Rothenberg at his Liberty Avenue offices. It requested detailed expenditures from... April 1, 1960, to the date of the Council's dissolution. If such a request is too burdensome, the statement should cover the last two years, 1961 through 1962. Their request again made clear that the Justice Department was not interested in expenditures related to Hebrew education and culture but rather expenditures by the Department of Information and Public Relations, so as to include the specific dates of payments made, the name of the person or organization to whom payment was made, the purpose for which payment was made, and the amount of the payment. Rothenberg responded on March 16, 1964. He suggested that the request for income and expenditures from the American Zionist Council fiscal year 1962 and the 10 months ending January 31, 1963 merely duplicated the information already furnished to you by the American Zionist Council. Rothenberg then raised the Katzenbach concession. You are familiar, I know, with the agreement reached between Judge Rifkin and Mr. Katzenbach in the presence of Mr. Yegley with regard to additional information to be furnished to your section. Such agreement was reached, as I understood it, in the realization by Mr. Katzenbach that with the present size of the staff of the council, it would be indeed burdensome to furnish your department with itemization of expenditures for the past two years. A sample itemization was therefore forwarded to you for a period of approximately three months. The basis of such agreement still obtains, and your requests with regard to the expenditures of the Department of Information and Public Relations would certainly impose that burden, which it was felt and agreed could be avoided. However, for the purpose of showing the good faith of the American Zionist Council, the Council would be prepared to submit to you a detailed statement of expenditures for the Department of Information and Public Relations for a sample period of three months. Such a period would, I am sure, be representative of the expenditure for the entire period requested. Rothenberg's hardline position that the American Zionist Council would provide only pro forma samples drawn from any period it wished rather than providing actual itemized expenditures generated sharp internal debate. The Rothenberg proposal letter crossed paths in the mail on March 16 with an outbound letter from the new acting head of the Faro Registration Section, James L. Weldon, demanding action. Weldon's letter was drafted by Yegley, who noted, The attached outgoing letter is for your information. We requested this info better than a month ago, and I see no justification for delaying our attached letter or reminder. I believe our last paragraph is more polite than is warranted. However, I'm aware of the scope of interest within the department on this matter. But the larger question remained unresolved. What exactly were the strictures of the Katzenbach concession made to the ACC? Only one person could answer. Yegley forwarded the Rothenberg correspondence to Nicholas Katzenbach under a confidential memo cover. Nick, this is the most blatant stall we have encountered. Do you mind suggesting what we do next? Because all of us here would call their records before a grand jury. Katzenbeck wrote to Nathaniel Rothenberg, Three-month samples were not sufficient. But the Deputy Attorney General's conciliatory response failed to clarify any tangible limits to his earlier concession made to Rifkin. While we have endeavored to make our request as reasonable as possible, we cannot accept your suggestion since the information offered is not in compliance with the Act or what we thought was our understanding with Judge Rifkin. The American Zionist Council dispatched yet another raft of irrelevant documents to the Ferris Action. analyzed internally by Irene Bowman on October 20, 1964. She found the expenditures were lumped into general headings with no dates or recipients mentioned. Under the heading titled Department of Information and Public Relations, there are 17 subheadings such as Grants to foundations and kindred organizations, $54,020. Pamphlet, newspapers, books, written materials, $7,119.68. Radio, TV, and films, $1,503.34. And speakers' fees and expenses, $17,856.49. As another illustration under a separate heading titled Special Services and Events, there's an item called Allocations to Constituent Zionist Organizations, $83,871.06. The AZC positioned itself as simply another node in the network, either unwilling or incapable of disclosing the ultimate destination and use of transferred funds. Bowman again noted the attribute plaguing previous American Zionist Council submissions. The sample itemization of payments was deemed deficient in that it did not cover a sufficient period of time. And the itemization set forth insignificant items in great detail while failing to focus attention on payments by the Department of Information and Public Relations. Bowman then attempted, possibly in desperation... To outline how the previous fairer requests for itemized disclosures actually fell within the limits of the Katzenbach concession. The above request appears to be in line with Mr. Katzenbach's position in this matter as expressed in his meeting on May 2, 1963 with Judge Rifkind, in which he said that if the council made a full disclosure of the receipt and expenditure of funds it had received from the Jewish agency so that such information would then be available for public inspection, the purposes and objectives of the Registration Act might well be accomplished. Mr. Katzenbach made it clear he was not at that time committing the department to accepting this procedure, but that we would examine the material filed by the council before reaching a decision, she wrote. But the American Zionist Council no longer had to risk full and potentially public disclosure to the Justice Department. On October 22, 1964, Katzenbach briefly attended his last formal meeting on the American Zionist Council matter with Rothenberg, Yegley, and Lenvin. The meeting was the beginning of a cascading series of capitulations to American Zionist Council demands for special treatment. Katzenbeck then became acting attorney general in September when Robert F. Kennedy resigned from the Department of Justice to begin his run for a New York Senate seat. Nathan Lenvin outlined the October 22, 1964 meeting, By noting the scarcity of Katzenbach's time and submission to AZC demands for material and temporal disclosure limits... Mr. Katzenbeck had to excuse himself because of urgent business elsewhere, but before he left, he made clear to Mr. Rothenberg that, in response to the latter's assertion that to submit all of the financial information we had previously requested for a two- to two-and-a-half-year period would be a greater burden on the subject, we would accept a statement as to a typical three-month expenditure projected for the entire period concerned. Katzenbeck was now accepting a... Projection as opposed to comprehensive actual declaration filings over the period in question for the Ferris section. Katzenbeck was even more conciliatory in allowing the American Zionist Council to choose which period it would like to report, as noted by Lenden. Mr. Rothenberg replied to Mr. Katzenbeck that the department could take any three month period it wanted, but Mr. Katzenbeck made it clear that it was their responsibility to pick a three month period that would reflect by projection the true state of expenditures made by the public information department of the American Zionist Council. After Katzenbeck left the meeting, Rothenberg contested the point that actual itemized rather than representative data would be required. Lenvin's notes continue. He did not entirely appreciate the ruling which Mr. Katzenbach had made in this matter. To wit, that we would not accept a typical three-month period, which was what Mr. Rothenberg seemed to think Mr. Katzenbach had requested. But we would have to have this typical three-month period projected so that it would reasonably reflect all of the expenditures of the Public Information Department of the subject during the period concerned. Mr. Rothenberg then stated that he understood and would attempt to accomplish this result. Rothenberg pressed for an additional major concession from the Department of Justice, that the names of public speakers contracted by the American Zionist Council who received indirect compensation from the Jewish Agency not be made public. Lenvin noted that this core public disclosure and the proposed three-month filing was going to be ruled on by Katzenbach. Included among the items which we advised Mr. Rothenberg we would want in the breakdown of expenditures were payments made to the lecturers who were retained by the subject to make speeches or talks on behalf of the subject. Mr. Rothenberg claimed that this could well be embarrassing, particularly to individuals such as university professors who would not want to make it part of the public record that they receive fees or expenses from the subject for this type of activity. Mr. Yegley indicated that he would present this view to Mr. Katzenbach to determine whether he would be willing to modify the financial statement we were expecting so that the names of these particular individuals would not have to be included. Katzenbeck apparently agreed... In handwritten notations to the meeting memo, Yegley noted that this type of confidentiality for the speakers was okay in view of agency terminated and speakers did not realize counsel was a foreign agent. Yegley further proposed a novel technical treatment of the speakers list, a non-public file to be held in the Farah public registration office. He made this handwritten notation on the second page of Lenvin's meeting notes file. They are to include the names for confidential info of department, not for public file. On November 4, 1964, Nathaniel Rothenberg advised Nathan Lenvin that he would provide detailed expenditures from the ACC Department of Information and Public Relations for the period of April, May, and June of 1962. This list was to contain administrative expenses, meetings and speakers' fees, written materials, television, radio, and film, subventions, and visitors to Israel. Rothenberg affirmed that the period chosen is a fair representation of the expenditures of this department for any and all other three-month periods and that the items set forth when projected over a yearly period would approximate the annual cost for each item. Yegley responded to Rothenberg on November 18, 1964 that it was intended, however, that the reporting period would be the entire period with which we are concerned, for example, January 1960 to April 1962. Mr. Katzenbeck agreed. However, that the report for the full period could be prepared by projecting a typical three-month period, and that as long as you are satisfied that the sample period selected was representative of the entire period and would result in a reasonably or substantially accurate report, he would be willing to accept it in that form. The Department of Justice had now capitulated, via Yegley, on any right to compare the three-month expenditures to an actual year of true income and expenses. On November 23, 1964, Rothenberg returned a short letter stating, In accordance with our understanding, I have asked the American Zionist Council to proceed with the preparation of the report. It will be forwarded to you at the earliest possible moment. Yet by January 19, 1965, no American Zionist Council declaration had yet been received in the Ferris section. Irene Bowman alerted Nathan Lenvin to his responsibilities. To date, to my knowledge, no such report has been submitted. It may be that you would like to bring this matter to Mr. Yegley's attention. It appears that a follow-up letter is in order. Then, on January 28, 1965... President Lyndon B. Johnson suddenly ended months of speculation by appointing Nicholas Katzenbach as Attorney General. The AZC registration issue soon began to move rapidly towards closure. Nathan Lenvin spoke with Rothenberg on February 25, 1965, about the delayed filing. Rothenberg asserted that it was caused by The inability to collect all the information we wanted in the detail it was indicated the department desired. However, he assured me this material had now been collected and was in the process of being put into proper form. Lenvin then invoked the name of the new attorney general in double negative scolding. I told Mr. Rothenberg that we had depended to some extent on his good faith in assuring us that the material would be coming in, and that I would not like to believe that he did not intend to adhere to the assurances he gave to Mr. Katzenbach during the course of the above-referred meeting. On March 2, 1965, Harry A. Steinberg, Executive Director of the American Zionist Council, forwarded an itemization of disbursements for the Department of Information and Public Relations for the period April 1, 1962, through June 30, 1962. Itemized payments were numerically coded to a separate list of speakers, organizations, and foundations, but Steinberg cautioned it was to be handled with the utmost care. Mr. Rothenberg has requested of you that this listing be kept separate and apart from the record of disbursement in any public files of your section. The Department of Information and Public Relations disbursements for the period totaled $37,986.92 in payments for administration, speakers' fees, written materials, broadcast media, subventions, and visitors to Israel— The secret list of speakers and payments for publications, as publicly intended, is somewhat unremarkable. It did not divulge any of the payments to Isaiah Cannon that the Jewish agency had specifically slated for the Near East Report. Those incremental payments, totaling $38,000 disclosed in the Senate hearings, were made much earlier, between June 29, 1960 and October 13 of 1961. The itemized payments disclosed were for a period long after the American section and American Zionist Council already knew of an impending investigation. Nevertheless, the disclosure matched to the secret coded list is of some interest. Mortimer J. Kroll, the desk operations manager at the New York Times radio station WQXR, and later with the New Yorker magazine in 1963, appears on the American Zionist Council payments list. He received $350 for press and publicity from the American Zionist Council. If this payment had been disclosed in 1965, it might have surprised Senator Fulbright, who had cautiously and somewhat humorously exonerated the New York Times and other major publications during testimony about Kennan's Near East Report in the August 1, 1963 session. Mr. Bokstein. Mr. Chairman, this is not the only publication which is favorable to Israel in the United States. There are others, Senator Fulbright. I have no doubt of it. Certainly the New York Times, the Washington Post. I could name a hundred of them, I guess. They're very favorable, and I'm not suggesting they are in your employ. I'm suggesting that Mr. Kennan is receiving far more of his funds from the Jewish the Israeli government, directly and indirectly, than is the New York Times. They're doing it strictly on their own, at least as far as I know. I really shouldn't speak authoritatively, because we haven't looked at it, but it is quite clear Mr. Kennan has been for practical purposes, as he states himself, up to a certain point of your reorganization, he was on your payroll. Then, in order to insulate him, you took this indirect way of paying him by buying his product and paying him in that way. I am only trying to understand how this is done. I don't know why he shouldn't register. The publications may not have been on the American Zionist Council Jewish Agency's payrolls, but some reporters and media personalities were certainly contractors. Among the other names appearing in the keyword index were Reverend Carl Baer of the American Christian Association for Israel, $500 for meetings and written materials. And Jacques Torxener, President of the Zionist Organization of America, $142 for travel expenses. Academics include Harvard PhD professor and author John Stossinger, $210 for fees and expenses, and Dr. Nasrallah Fatemi, $234.97 for travel expenses. Fatemi served as Iran's Delegate to the United Nations in the 1950s and later became Director Emeritus of the Graduate Institute of International Studies at Farley Dickinson University in New Jersey. Among the smaller payments itemized, as little as 72 cents for a booklet, was a disbursement to Joseph B. Schneckman, 1891 to 1970, but the payment is nonetheless noteworthy. Shekman was the founder of the World Union of Zionist Revisionists and would become a prolific author after moving to the U.S. in 1941. His many books include The Arab Refugee Problem, 1952, The Life and Times of Vladimir Shabatinsky, Rebel and Statesman, The Early Years, 1956, On Wings of Eagles, The Plight, Exodus, and Homecoming of Oriental Jewry, 1951, Jordan, a state that never was, nineteen sixty eight. Arab Terror, Blueprint for Political Murder, nineteen sixty nine, and Israel Explores Dariassin Blood Libel, nineteen sixty nine. Though he only received twelve dollars as a speaker's expense on the AZC coded disclosure, he was already serving on the Executive Committee of the Jewish Agency at the time. Like other individuals listed in the disclosures, the AZC probably felt that Schectman could fend for himself if he was outed as an ACC contractor. Few of the organizations and individuals selected for the short American Zionist Council filing would generate undue problems or even interest if discovered. But they never were. Their public disclosure was classified. Nathan Lenvin must have exhaled a somewhat Self-satisfied breath of relief to Irene Bowman. Apparently, my visit with Mr. Rothenberg has had at least some concrete results. If we can reasonably find that this is in substantial compliance with the understanding reached between Mr. Rothenberg and Mr. Katzenbach in regard to what this organization would report, then I believe we should try to write finis to this, at least for the time being. If you do find this fairly satisfactory, then we should make an effort to gather the other material which has been submitted, including the propaganda material, and if possible, make one file, which would then be available for public inspection, should such an occasion arise. Now on the spot, Irene Bowman momentarily crumbled. She filed a neutral, almost mechanical memo, recapitulating Katzenbach's earlier acceptance of a sample reporting period and the AZC's submission of material without indicating any tangible approval or disapproval. She did raise one final outstanding issue. Would Steinberg's request for recipient secrecy actually be allowed by the Justice Department? If it was, how would the Ferris section handle a non-public public disclosure? Bowman once again appealed to Lenvin's superiors, writing, In the covering letter to the department, Mr. Harry A. Steinberg, executive director of the American Zionist Council, states that Mr. Rothenberg has requested that this listing be kept secret and apart from the record of disbursements in any public files of this section. It is suggested that the sufficiency of this material as a registration statement should be passed upon by either Mr. Yegley or Mr. Katzenbach. But then, in cursive handwriting across the bottom of the memo, appears Bowman's obtuse initialed capitulation. Later documents indicate her additional clarification was produced under duress, writing, I agree with the conclusion that I recommended that the material be accepted and put into form for public examination. Bowman's actual position truer to her previous form, is illuminated in a file entry detailing the utter inadequacy of the American Zionist Council material as a FARA registration. It is dated the very next day, March 24 of 1965. Her resentment at being forced to synthesize and approve a statement conjured up from disparate documents and projections shines through in her memo, now coolly addressed to the Department files rather than to Nathan B. Lenvin. Bowman wrote, "...while it appears possible to make up a registration statement from documents furnished by a prospective registrant, these documents should furnish all of the information required by the Act to be stated in a registration statement. The above material, none of which is executed under oath, fails to provide the following information for the purpose of the Act, the identification of the foreign principal. The Jewish Agency, American Section, Incorporated, and whether the agency relationship still exists. The agreement, or terms of the agreement, if oral, between the Jewish Agency and the American Zionist Council. A detailed itemization of the expenditures for the period, April 1960, to the date of dissolution from the Department of Information and Public Relations. A comprehensive statement regarding the funds received from the foreign principal from 1960, including the purpose for which received, and a concise statement of the activities taken on behalf of the foreign principal. In addition, no short-form registration statements have been filed by responsible officers of the American Zionist Council. It should also be pointed out that the Department has apparently agreed to accept the report of expenditures submitted by the Department of Information and Public Relations without the listing of the names of the recipients of the subventions. The problem with which Senator Fulbright was concerned during his inquiry regarding the administration of the Foreign Agents Registration Act. It is the writer's, Irene Bowman's, view that the report without this listing does not comply with the Act and is meaningless. For the foregoing reasons, the writer is opposed to the acceptance of the materials submitted by the ACC as a registration statement, wrote Bowman. Irene Bowman was the last bastion defending the rule of law in the Ferris section, but time had run out, and she was about to be overruled internally. In an exasperated March 31, 1965 memo to Yegley, Lenvin noted, At this stage in the game, our only alternative would be to institute prosecutive proceedings. Since, in my view, this would be impractical, I recommend that the material submitted be accepted as a registration statement, and put into such form as would be available for public inspection in the event such an occasion should arise, wrote Lenvin. Readers of the internal Justice Department record may accurately interpret the word impractical as a euphemism for completely lacking necessary political capital. The clock had run out, and rule of law now had to take a back seat as Lenvin approved Rothenberg's assertion that No useful purpose would be served by including these names in the material which would be made available for public inspection. Lenvin hinged his final recommendation that the section accept the filing as a FARA registration on a tenuous tidbit from a preliminary legislative report draft divulged by a staffer on Fulbright's Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Linvin wrote, in connection with our original basis for requesting the registration for the AZC, it is interesting to note that the contemplated report of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee was shown me by Mr. Norval Jones, a staff member of the committee, and it states that the receipt of a subsidy from a foreign principal without direction or control by a foreign principal would, in the view of the committee, not create an obligation to register, In the event it was determined that prosecution should be instituted, and such prosecution was initiated subsequent to the issuance of the report, such a statement by the committee indicating the intent of Congress in regard to coverage of the Foreign Agents Registration Act would, in my view, seriously mitigate against any successful prosecution. Yegley, was apparently now eager for the section's blessing of the highly unorthodox registration noted, Also, the relationship terminated a couple years ago, at least. Beneath Lenvin's typed justification for not making public the names of fund recipients, Hand handwrote, Okay, I would like to see how the file is set up. Both internal security division executives had now conveniently repressed the Jewish agency's documented direction of funds to Isaiah L. kennan among many other contrary findings. Powered by this voluntary amnesia, the American Zionist Council's unique non-public registration was gathering momentum. However, the Ferris section would be forced to endure a final and precisely timed humiliation. It revealed how lost Yegley and the others had truly become in convincing themselves that the essence of the foreign principle to U.S. lobby relationship had ever, or would ever, terminate. The majority of the internal security division now seemed anxious to close the American Zionist Council file, finally and forever. The Bowman reversal on principle, coupled with Katzenbach's newer and higher responsibilities, meant only one thing: Yeagley needed to formalize the American Zionist Council's special joint public secret filing at the Ferris section. Nathan Lenvin had already worked out an internal procedure for public inquiries. He circled back to the phrase used by the Jewish agency's Maurice Bokstein on October 31, 1962. Having probably read through his earlier records before crafting his final major memo, Lenvin downgraded the entire affair to the level of a bona fide dispute. He wrote, The material filed by the American Zionist Council was filed in accordance with an understanding between the department and the ACC and was filed as a result of a bona fide dispute between the parties as to whether registration was, in fact, required under Farah. Neither party was inclined to test the applicability of the statute in the criminal proceeding. Thus, it was agreed that the material would not comprise a registration statement, but would supply basic information regarding the activities of the American Zionist Council, financed in part by the Jewish Agency American Section, Inc. This material is available for public inspection. Lenvin built up his earlier tentative rationalizations about the American Zionist Council while simultaneously devaluing the real power and institutional prerogative of the Department of Justice, to act in the interests of the american people in retrospect the only party capable of initiating a criminal proceeding was the internal security division which had relatively recently contemplated taking the azc file to a grand jury and sending in the fbi the bona fide dispute branding now characterized the affair as a squabble between curiously equal parties J. Walter Yeagley quickly adopted Lenvin's bona fide dispute phraseology when he formally closed the case with the FBI, though he wisely dropped Lenvin's references to testing the statute. May 14, 1965 was the date of Yeagley's last formal contact with the FBI on the entire AZC matter. He wrote to the FBI, references made to the division's memorandum to your bureau dated on August 23, 1963, captioned as above, in which you were advised that the registration of the AZC had been solicited under the Foreign Agents Registration Act and that discussions are being held between departmental officials and representatives of the AZC regarding its obligations under the act. For your information, the AZC has submitted informational material, which is available in the registration section for public examination. This material was filed in accordance with an understanding between the department and the AZC and was filed as a result of a bona fide dispute between the parties as to whether registration was, in fact, required under the Act. The material does not comprise a registration statement, but does supply basic information regarding activities of the AZC, financed in part by the Jewish agency American Section, Inc. Yegley then coached the rest of the DOJ staffers about where the color-coded AZC material would be located and how to handle any public inquiries. The material filed by the AZC was placed in an expandable portfolio to distinguish it in appearance from the registration statements, which are filed in manila folders. In the event Ms. Eldred receives inquiries as to whether the AZC is registered under the Act, she has been instructed to respond in the negative. She is to advise, however, that the AZC has filed information with this section, which is available for public examination." On a final consolidating memo formalizing the accommodations for the secret section of the AZC file, Yeagley wistfully penned, perhaps for posterity, Okay, this seems to be what Attorney General Kennedy and the then-Deputy A.G. Katzenbach had in mind. His earlier commitment to uphold law as applied to the facts in this particular case was now defunct. Robert F. Kennedy, elected and serving in the Senate since January 3, 1965, had long since moved on to other controversies. RFK fell to assassination on June 6, 1968. No former Department of Justice insider writing a book, investigator, or member of the news media ever had the AZC files declassified to reveal a remarkable, if somewhat bureaucratic, saga. Few insiders had anything to gain from it. For some of those directly involved, promising career advances awaited. Others were reaching the end of the line and had no need to rock the boat. Only one, Irene A. Bowman, seems to have been a likely candidate for disclosing the story. J. Walter Yegley went on to become a District of Columbia Court of Appeals judge and died peacefully in West Palm Beach, Florida in 1990. Nathan B. Lenvin, longtime veteran of the Ferris section, never left the Department of Justice. He died in his sleep at the age of 58 during a business trip to Chicago to interview potential recruits in 1968. His wife, an English teacher in Northern Virginia, died 30 years later, survived by their two children. Nicholas Katzenbach died in 2012. He's remembered for a legendary 1963 Civil Rights era showdown with Alabama Governor George Wallace, who literally blocked the entry of two black students into the University of Alabama. Katzenbach rose to become U.S. Undersecretary of State from 1966 to 1969, and his pithy and now declassified Johnson administration analysis is entering the American public consciousness via new Middle East histories, including those covering the 1967 Six-Day War. These histories refute the volumes of orthodox narratives of an Israeli David pitted against the Arab Goliath. Among the more recent Katzenbach blurbs to be released, quote, "...the intelligence was absolutely flat on the fact that the Israelis could wipe out the Arabs in no time at all." But whatever became of the American Zionist Council... Its public affairs and lobbying functions eventually morphed into the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee and affiliated organizations and think tanks. But the American Zionist Council did settle its score with the Ferris section in Canon's favorite arena, the press. Among the last items in the Ferris section's file on the American Zionist Council is a single news clipping from the New York Times dated May 17, 1965. It was not formally logged into the department until two days after Yegley closed the AZC case. Its headline read Nine Zionist Groups Agree on Program. The article revealed that the American Zionist Council, contrary to the multiple assertions from Simon Rifkin and Nathan Rothenberg about its impending dissolution, was very much alive and kicking. It read, The American Zionist movement took a major step yesterday toward revising its program to strengthen every phase of Jewish religious and cultural life in this country. 300 delegates of nine Zionist groups, which represent varying ideological viewpoints, agreed for the first time on a program of unified action to safeguard the survival and growth of the American Jewish community. The action was taken at an all-day planning conference at 515 Park Avenue convened by the American Zionist Council, the representative body of such groups, which have an overall membership of 750,000. The delegates reaffirmed Zionist responsibility toward the security and welfare of Israel and the need for the United States government to affirm in unmistakable terms America's commitment to the security and independence of all Middle East nations and its determination to prevent aggression, be it military or economic. They urged that there should be no appeasement at the expense of Israel. Lenvin, Bowman, Yegley were probably shocked, not only at the story's timing, but at the audacity of the AZC summit's location. It was listed as taking place at the same address where the Jewish agency American section office was headquartered. The AZC meeting also signaled the beginning of a new and even more aggressive phase for the lobby— which would soon challenge U.S. election law enforcement and the sanctity of classified U.S. economic and national security information. APAC would provide a clean corporate shell organization into which the ACC's lobbying and public relations talent and initiative infrastructure would be poured. Still, scattered public resistance continued. The Jewish Agency American section would be abruptly forced to shut down. A professor and an activist, the only two members of the public ever logged at the FARA section as having reviewed the public American Zionist Council FARA filing, analyzed it and mounted legal challenges to the Jewish Agency American section. However, just as the AZC was only temporarily inconvenienced before it was reborn within APAC, the Jewish Agency American section would also rapidly reemerge, somewhat cynically, and yet another orchestrated corporate shell company ballet. Such timely and opportunistic morphing became the lobby's specialty. For Americans who have wondered about the Department of Justice's reticence to take on the Israel lobby in the face of decades of seemingly clear statutory violations, this inside account provides useful clarity. There is an institutional history behind that extreme reluctance. Few in the Justice Department would or could discuss the relevant history with outsiders until the day it was declassified. That day has arrived and perhaps a more informed discussion and warranted law enforcement may commence. And what became of Irene Bowman after this showdown? Predictably, Bowman's innate sense of fair play drove her straight into trouble at the Department of Justice. In 1976, at the age of 45, she filed a lawsuit alleging age and sex discrimination in the promotion of women. Bowman was a highly accomplished 1955 graduate of Ohio State University Law School and Secretary of the Law Review. She won this lawsuit and received monetary damages. She then went on to work helping other women with sex discrimination appeals from within the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, an agency established via the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to administer and enforce civil rights laws against workplace discrimination. She worked in this new role. Until six weeks before she died in 1982. Bowman was clearly the only public official who did not succumb to the pressures outlined by L. Edward Tonkin in his explicit warning to Robert F. Kennedy. Bowman and other dedicated officials at the U.S. Department of Justice briefly stood and fought on America's defense line. They all failed.